So uh, this evening, I would like to talk about meditation in nature, meditation practice in nature, what, what the relationship is of uh, practice, meditation is with the outdoors, and what relationship the outdoors has with our inner work, our inner practice. So for me, they're not separate. I've spent the last oh, 15 years or so doing a lot of my practice, meditation outside, on my deck, on the beach, up in the hills here, and forever eloping out of the meditation hall into the forest or the woods or the trees or wherever I can dwell outdoors. I find it a very supportive, conducive, inspiring uh, place to practice. As I know, many of you um, probably go outside. That's probably why you live around here, because partly because the nature is so gorgeous and inviting, and it's not twenty below, and it's <laughs> not flooding, and it's not you know under snow. Well, um, so I just got back from Mexico. Um, it was interesting. We had Mexican food tonight. Sort of is in the theme, you know, tortillas. And, and um, so I was doing a, leading a, a week-long paddle, sea kayaking a meditation course in Baja. I do this annually with my friend Bob at Sea Trek and folks there. And so, um, of course, it was beautiful. We go to beautiful places. I mean, anyway, it becomes beautiful once you pay attention long enough outside. But um, and if you've, those of you familiar with the Baja sunrises, the, um, we get up really early. This year we got up particularly early. We got up about 5, 5.30. And um, this particular time of the month, um, we, we had the good fortune for several days of before the sunrise, we'd have the moonrise. And it was just, just a silver crescent moon with a star next, with a, with a planet next to it. So we'd wake up and this, the, the reflection would be shimmering on the, on the black water. And then, this, then there's this glow of the sun, with the clouds would light up, and then at some point the sun would, this golden orb would rise out of the ocean. And it was really suffering. It was great suffering. <laughs> and we're exploring the first noble truth. There is suffering in this life. And then at night, you know, we would we would we encourage people to sleep outside because the stars, are, the canopy is spectacular. It's so far away from any large city or town that the uh, night sky, because we could see out to the horizon uh, along the, the water. So there's this huge canvas of, of stars and shooting stars and planets, and um, so going to sleep with that as the ceiling of our bedroom was very delicious and meditating at night under the stars that being the, the roof of the Dharma hall and of course it, it just invites this quality of space you know, spaciousness, expansiveness so often you know, we had one woman, probably many others but they didn't say who um, spends all her week in a cubicle <laughs> as many people do these days a windowless cubicle and so going from the windowless cubicle to the vast spaciousness of the sky and the ocean and the, and the, the landscape there was very 
You know, we're, we're, the, we're conditioned beings, you know, we're conditioned by our environment to where we put ourselves, right? So if we put ourselves in a spacious, open, natural environment, what happens? We become spacious and open and receptive. We, you know, our mind, this practice called mingling the mind with the sky, sky gazing, we gaze at the sky and let the, let the awareness mingle with the sky so our awareness becomes as vast as that which we perceive, that which we behold. So you look at the night scars, the night stars, and the mind gets that big, that spacious. That's why we love to go outside, you know, when we're under stress or busy or just stepping outside the front door, going out into the deck or the yard, or even if you live in the city, this, we can still see some of the stars, some of the, the sky. The, you know, I started my meditation practice when I was in London, in the east end of London. It was pretty run-down, gray, lala high-rise uh, buildings and... Um, but there's always nature, and I, I started to become attuned to nature when I was there. When I started meditating, when I started doing mindfulness, I was desperate from, for some natural you know, elements. And there was always you know, grasses growing up on the sidewalk and trees surviving amidst the smog and birds braving uh, the, uh, the pollution. And skies always there. The sunrise was always there. The moon was always there. You know, sometimes I'd be biking. I'd bike a lot in London. And, turn the corner and almost fall off my bike because the full moon would be rising between a you know, set of high-rise buildings. And, you know, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We think, oh, it's out there. You know, it's out there in the wilderness. You know, I've got to go to Yosemite or something to get nature or to the beach. But it's really everywhere when we look. When I was writing my book, so I wrote a book about this called Awake in the Wild. And um, it was originally, the book was called Sacred Wilderness, and I was, because my, my, my time out in nature had mainly been in the wilderness, and then I realized that you don't have to go to the wilderness to experience the profundity and the beauty of nature. You know, it really is available everywhere, most places. You know, there's some pretty grim inner-city places that's not so accessible, but the sky and the wind and the elements never leave us. You know, and I give these... Um, book tour talks, you know, be sitting in these big bookstores or libraries or somewhere and, and I'd always remind people we're surrounded by forests in this bookstore, you know, the wooden shelves and the paper pages and, and where do they come from? You know, the, from the forest, we're sitting in the forest. So one night we took a night paddle because the phosphorescence, they have a lot of phosphorescence down on that coast. And phosphorescence is this algae that lights up when it's agitated so when you put your paddle in to, to paddle in the kayak, it's like Star Wars with the, you know, the lightsaber thing and, the, and just this huge ray of light. And you throw stones and these ripples of light go rippling out. And if the fish dart away, you see this streak of light. So it was very psychedelic without the use of anything except meditation. So... Um, so it's a beautiful place to practice, and that's, that's partly what I want to talk about tonight. It's also um, challenging, you know. It's not just beautiful. It's not just a pastoral landscape that we look at like a painting all week. We're in it. You know, and sometimes it's baking hot because it's Mexico in spring, and sometimes it's cold with the wind. And um, This year we had a lot of wind. And uh, so we got, we weren't able to go, you know, we had a whole itinerary of going to this island, that island, and doing a little journey, and we got, 
you know, sort of maroon, not marooned, but you know, held back on an island because we couldn't go because when the wind whips up down in Baja, the waves get quite large and it's challenging to paddle. So um, I had this great plan of how the retreat was going to go and my schedule and, you know, everybody else was laughing up there, you know. And um, so we got stuck on this beach for three days and that was, it wasn't my particularly favorite beach. So I got to work with, you know, okay, I can get to work with whatever happens, you know. Of course, the great thing about teaching these things is because it's a mindfulness retreat and everything is practiced, nobody really can complain because it's just good practice. <laughs> so if there's something wrong with the retreat, well, it's just you've got to work with it. <laughs> notice your mind, notice your reactivity, notice you know, if you don't like the wind or you don't like the, the sounds or the bugs or the heat or the coolness or the camping outside or the outdoor bathroom. Or, you know, no flushing toilets on the beach there. So, and I was interesting coming back. I flew back, um, and we fly back via LA, which is always an interesting place to fly into after you've been out in the wilderness. I once went from the canyons in Arizona. I took a drive from there right to Vegas to catch my flight, which was some was quite a contrast. Um, but this time we flew over Vegas, through uh, flew over LA which I always find a little uh, tragic. It's just seeing that huge sprawl after coming from the pristine desert. And I was sitting with this delightful old gentleman who was 83 years old and grew up uh, in L.A. at the time, in, in the 30s and the 40s. And he was flying, we were flying over different parts of the coast. And he said, oh, this was all orange groves when I was a lad. All orange groves, Orange County. And now it's all you know, sprawl and industrial and whatnot. And, and it always reminds me of the... It's this bittersweet pill we have when we practice, when we open our attention to the to the earth, to nature, to what's happening in this planet, and the the erosion of of, uh, wilderness and pristine areas and 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 suburban areas, and the sprawl and all of that's going on. And I did just hear that uh, the president signed in uh, into. Uh, preservation, several million acres today, um, protecting land in nine different states. That's been some of which was tried to got, uh, Clinton tried to protect way back when, and it got blocked for the last 15 years by different interests. And um, so I was very happy to hear that, that you know this where you have this, con- this this very interesting dynamic of both this intense passion and love to preserve this beautiful planet and this this this. You know, rapacious um, industrial machine that just consumes the planet, and this is an incredible tension we live in. We all have a choice every moment of our lives: Are we supporting the Earth? Are we harming in some way the Earth? Are we are we are we are we complicit in its depletion of its resources? So, and part of my motivation for for doing this work in nature is was to is was and will be to get people out into it, into 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 nature, into the wilderness, into the woods, into the into the pristineness. Because it's when we fall in love with it, when we fall in love with anything, that we want to take care of it. And with the tragedy that's happening with this generation and is that there's less and less access to nature because of fear, because of computers because of all kinds of things and when so when our, this generation has less access to nature then what happens is we have a generation that doesn't care so much 
as many of you as I did. I grew up running around farmers' fields and playing in the woods and you know setting fire to things and you know <laughs> causing all kinds of trouble. You know, we used to make these little cities in the wheat fields. I'm sure the farmer completely detested us because we'd bury, bur- burrow our way through the you know this ripened wheat, you know, about three, four foot, three foot high. You make these little little kind of dens in the middle of the field, so nobody could see us. You know, and uh, as actually, I think in my in, in, in one of those experiences, I was lying in this den, and you know, just like when you lie down, you couldn't see any houses or any people, or, and just the sky and the the, the the wheat blowing in the wind. And I remember having this experience of of what I'd now call oneness or unity, or you know, just complete peace. And connection, you know, in, in a way that I hadn't had, didn't feel so much growing up. And um, I've always looked back to that experience as really significant, both spiritually but also in my relationship to nature. And I remember thinking, as I grew up, to be a sort of angry young man, thinking, "Oh, I, I've lost that. I've lost touch with that, that peace, that connection that we we, we know as children." And I used to think, well, it's, I'll, never get it, I'll never get that innocence back. I'll never get that, that purity back, that connection back. And um, what happened through meditation was I actually re- refound that. You know, it, that, that the, through meditation, it reawoke that love, that appreciation, that sensitivity, that receptivity, that openness to, to nature, to myself, to other people. So... Um, so when I came to the when I came to the states, I moved out here in '93. And coming from Europe, where there's not a lot of wilderness in England, there's, there's, there isn't any wilderness. It's all pretty cultivated. And there's a few beautiful areas, but they're inundated with the 60 million people who live there, scrambling for a little bit of open space. Um, so coming to the states was really an eye opener. And it's one of the reasons I always wanted to come here was because there's so much open space, there's so much unspoiled uh, land here. And it's it's an amazing resource that it, that's still here. So um, back in the day when um, Siddhartha was was a young man practicing in the in the forest, um, and when he was a monk and when he attained enlightenment, and the forty five years that he taught after he attained enlightenment, he uh, lived in the woods. Northern India was at that time a very undeveloped. You know, somewhat agrarian, but there was a lot of jungle, forest, and farmland. And so um, the monks and the nuns of that era, for many centuries, practiced, lived outside. You know, the, the, the wandering ascetics that he joined when he left the palace at 29, they lived in the forest. They, lived, they wore rag, a robe of rags and uh, took whatever food came their way, but they lived outside. And, you know, just when I go out backpacking or something like this week, you know, even just spending a week outside, it's amazing to see what effect that does to the mind. You know, when we leave our, you know, Blackberries and email and commute and TV and all of that stuff that seems so important when we're in the middle of it, and then we get away (laughs) to to nature, it's like, huh. Who cares? Like, who cares if I have the 2G or the 3G iPhone or whatever it is, and what does it do anyway? And I don't understand it. And, and thank God it doesn't work when you're out there. You know, no reception, nada. You know, no internet cafes on the beach. 
And so the mind gets to quieten down, gets to calm down. And all this, all this, all this, what do they call it, tweaking? Or the, twittering. twittering, all this twittering. It's, you know, it's, it's a great word because we twitter like, you know, twitterers. <laughs> you know, texting and email and calling. And, you know, it's just this incessant need for contact and connection. It's, and so what does it do? It agitates the mind. You know, always agitated. So we let that stuff go, even if we didn't do anything else, but just went, you know, we just said, okay, you can send you off to the woods and there's a cabin out there, nothing to do, just hang out, just sit in the hammock. That, our mind would get really quiet, maybe a little restless, but mostly quiet. So, um, so imagine what it's like if you were living it, if that was your life, if you had left, you know, the worldly life as it's called, you know, and become a monk or a nun, and all you did was meditate in the forest, what would your mind be like? It would be really quiet, really still, really steady. So this is the environment that these, that these folks were practicing. No, mon- no wonder so many of them got enlightened, because you know, they weren't so pulled by all the distractions. You know? We live in this amazing time with this amazing resources and, and you know, information and technology and media and we live in the Bay Area, it's like this, you know, cornucopia of stimulation, you know, and it's wonderful and beautiful and cultural and all that, all of that good stuff. And it keeps us very busy and very restless, partly just to keep working to be able to afford to live here to do some of it, <laughs> you know. So, um, so it keeps us entertained, but, you know, when I go out, into, into the natural world and I, you know, I'm just sitting out in the woods or at the beach or somewhere, there's a stillness and a peace that's so much more satisfying than getting any kind of new, new cell phone or computer or whatever it is. It's a certain kind of peace and satisfaction and contentment and ease that's actually really what we want. We want all this stuff, you know, are working hard to make money, to get ahead so we can retire early, so we can what? Have some peace in the moment. Have some free time so we can relax. So we do a lot of postponing. So, I, so, so when, I, when I'm out doing these retreats out in nature, I think about, you know, the, when I first started doing them, I used to think they were a little heretical. You know, I should be in a retreat center and zendo. It's all, you know, with the, you know, cushions and quiet and very zen and... But actually, what I realized was like, I mean, we're just going back to the roots, going back to how we started, meditating in the forest. The, the Buddha said often at the end of a teaching, he would say, um, get it exactly right, he said, there are trees and the roots of trees. Go meditate, seek solace in the forest, lest you regret it later. There are trees and there are the roots of trees. He didn't say go find a nice cushy cabin somewhere where they see, you know, in Thailand. He said, no, go to the roots of trees. There's a reason we go to the roots of trees. We go to trees, there's, there's, they're profound teachers. You know, we live in this, this area, there's beautiful oaks and the, the redwoods and great teachers of stability and stillness and peace and fluidity and connectedness. And I love how the, the redwood roots, you know, they, they only go six feet deep, but they go hundreds of feet horizontally and they all interweave with each other keep each other standing. We could do with more of that. 
So in every in every Buddhist tradition, there's a, there's a strong emphasis on nature. You know, a lot of the Zen, you know, all the monasteries, in, in most of the monasteries, aside from the urban ones, they're all out in these in these spectacular places, remote mountain hermitages in Tibet, forest monasteries in Thailand. And they're, they're there for a reason because of the support of the elements away from the the twittering. And a lot of those teachers you know, talk about nature. There, there was a great master, Achan Buddhadasa, who was you know, sort of one of the teachers we looked to in this tradition. He was a great elder and scholar. And um, a friend of mine, Rodney Smith, a Vipassana teacher, went to study with him in the, in the 70s or the 80s. And um, he'd heard so many things about him. He's one of the most renowned teachers in Thailand. And he's, so he went, to, he went to the Achan and said, I'd like to study with you. I've heard many things about you, and I'd like to become a monk here and stay here. And he said, no, 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 sorry, you can't stay. I have to go somewhere else. And he was massively disappointed. And so he was packed his bags and was heading to go out. And the monk caught him and said, what's happening? What's going on? He said, oh, he didn't want me studying here. So, he, so this monk found out what Rodney said. He said, no, okay, this is what you do. You go back. And you say, I'm here to learn from nature. Because Achan Buddhadasa's monastery was in, in the jungles, and his, his um, monastery was called Garden of Liberation. Beautiful monastery, being this very beautiful jungle and these little cabins in the woods. And so he, would, um, he went back and said to the Achan, he said, Oh, you know, I'd like to study here, and I'm really here to learn from nature. And Achan Buddhadasa was like, Ah, oh, great, yes. His eyes lit up. Yes, you can study here. Nature is the teacher here. Nature, you learn about your nature from nature. Learn about your truth from the true nature in nature. And so Rodney stayed there for three years, sitting and walking in the woods. This is from Han Shan, who was a great um, Buddhist and Taoist um, poet in China in the ninth century. He says, As for me, I delight in the everyday way among mist-wrapped vines and rocky caves. Here in the wilderness, I am completely free with my friends, the white clouds, idling forever. There are roads, but they do not reach the world. Since I am mindless, who can rouse my thoughts? On a bed of stone, I sit alone in the night, while the round moon climbs up cold mountain. So in the Western tradition, people like Thoreau and Emerson and Whitman, also great, great lovers of the wilderness and nature, as were so many of the great poets. This is from Thoreau, who, when he was talking about his time at Walden, he writes, I went to the woods to live deliberately, to confront only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discover that I had not truly lived. So I love that idea that we learn, we learn from nature about what's important, about what's really real. You know, we can get so lost in the, in the busyness and, the, and the, the fullness of our lives, but we can often lose the essence, the meaning of what's really of value. You know, we spend so much time getting ahead, and then we often forget, well, what actually am I doing? What is the purpose? You know, we wake up 10, 20, 30 years, and we go, what was that about? You know, yeah, I was successful, and I made some money, and I did this. And, but is that really what's of value at the end of the day when I'm on my deathbed? Is that really what's going to, what I'm going to feel 
that was what a good use of my life. So I think nature reminds us of that. It, it, it strips us a little bare. You know, it's not, it's not pretentious. It's not um, fluffy. It's not. Uh, there's no ego in nature, in the natural world. So it doesn't reflect and flatter our egoistic tendencies. You know, I think one of the profound teachings about being in nature is um, uh, nature isn't doing the self story. You know, humans are the only things on this planet running around with egos, making themselves try and be really important. You know, propping ourselves up, making ourselves look good, and you know, planning ahead and competing with other egos and. You know the stories that we live in with those. We go out into the into the woods, and you know the oak tree doesn't care how many Lexuses you have, or how much money you have, or how many you know PhDs you have. It's just being. The tree is being, being, being a tree. The deer is being a deer. Flowers are being flowers. And so, what happens if we spend some time outdoors is that all our self centered tendency, the selfing, the habit of making a, making a self starts to get less. You know, if we get quiet, if we, if we bring this contemplative awareness to nature and we get quiet enough, we, the sense of self that we're usually so preoccupied and thinking so much about gets a little quiet, maybe momentarily. Maybe you've, you've, I'm sure you all had these experiences. Maybe they usually take you by surprise. They're usually the moments we look to and go, wow, that was a really profound moment. That was a really deep moment. That was a moment I was very connected. Maybe some, you know, you're on holiday and you, 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 you're up in the middle of the night, you go take a pee or something and you walk out onto the veranda and there's the full moon and you suddenly stop and sort of naked in your tracks and silenced by the beauty, you know. Or you go out and you see the spring blossoms, you know, and the, you know, and the almond trees out in the valley, you know in the wine country. And we get quiet and we forget about ourselves. You know, it's that, that beautiful Ute prayer where we said, you know, earth teach me about uh, melt, teach me about melting snow. Teach me to forget myself like melting snow. And when we forget ourselves, what happens? Then we're more present to what is all around us because we're not so busy, you know, obsessing about me and my and my projects and my desires and my goals and my just, oh, there's just peace, you know, the peace that we're looking for by doing all those things, it's already right here. That's the, that's the irony of all these things that we do. It's what the spiritual teachings are trying to tell us. It's already right here. Peace is already right here. And by doing all these things, we, by getting busy, we forget that. And nature is a great reminder. Oh, it's already right here. This is from David Wagoner, the poet. He writes, it's called Lost. It's for us, the lost ones. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes, listen, 
It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to raven, no two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So the Buddha put it in the teaching to Bahia that we often give reference to. This young man asked the Buddha what the essence of his teaching was. And he said, in the seeing, there was just the seeing. In the hearing, there was just the hearing. In the sensing, the body, there's just sensing. In the thinking, there's just the thinking. In the seeing, just the seeing. In the heard, just the heard. Nothing else, nothing extra, just hearing sounds. Seeing sights, feeling the breath, sensing the body, smelling, touching, thinking. That's our experience. That's our whole experience right there. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And when we're outdoors, that becomes very um, elemental. And I often encourage people to really, you know, to get present, especially out anywhere, but particularly outdoors, inhabit your senses. And the senses are always in the present. And it's a beautiful doorway to presence. When we, you know, come out of the busyness of our mind and our stories and just, oh, right. There's just seeing, there's just hearing, there's just smelling, tasting, touching. That's all there is. And then there's all the stories we add to. Oh, it's a person. Oh, I like them. Oh, I don't like them. Oh, they're my best friend. Oh, they're my enemy. Oh, I want to go out with them. No, I don't. Oh. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, we create these whole melodramas. You know, it was, this, it was great being at this, on this retreat. So it was windy and... Um, I usually love the wind, but for this reason, you, know, you never know how you're going to be or what you're going to do and how your mind's going to react. And this, this time, I wasn't so crazy about the wind. You know, we had you know, a whole week of it, mostly. And uh, we were sitting on this beach, and we, were, we couldn't really go off the beach, so we had just to be with the wind. And you know, I was like, okay. <laughs> um, you know, at times when it was fine, at times when I was reactive. And what I find with wind is, you know, especially in, in, from the Chinese medicine perspective, wind agitates the system, you know, agitates the nerves, right? It's a little, you know, <laughs> some people would know about this here. <laughs> and um, so I was a little agitated. And, um, and, then so, and then what happened is every little beach has a pair of seagulls that are made for life and that's their beach. And then whenever another seagull comes over, they get very territorial. And <laughs> so you'd know when there's an approaching seagull because you'd hear the seagull. And of course, there's a lot of seagulls. And you know, we're humans, and you know, seagulls like flies to humans. They just love us because we know we throw food away. So um, we'll be sitting in meditation. There'll be wind, and it's just okay, breathing, wind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first couple of times, it's cute. You know, oh, it's the seagulls. They're protecting their space. It's sweet. How nice. <laughs> Will you shut up? <laughs> Just share the beach. There's a lot of space. Let's invite them in. Let's have a party. You know. <laughs> you 
you know, some people are reporting how much they're loving the seagulls and how beautiful and loving the sound. It helps them get present. And I'm like, okay, seagulls. <laughs> so, you know, so, what, so it's, it's the nature just this beautiful mirror, you know. It's not about the seagulls. It's not about the wind. The wind is just being wind. The seagulls are being beautiful seagulls. And what we do with it is what we do with it. And then we either at peace or we're completely miserable. You know, take your pick. <laughs> you know, so sometimes it doesn't feel like we have a choice. It's like, oh, get me away. We, were, we had this beautiful cliff wall on three sides. So it was a great sort of amphitheater of, you know, um, it would just um, amplify the sound. <laughs> so anyhow. So, so why do we practice? Boy, I'm not going to get through this talk. I could do about five talks on this subject. You have to come back next week for part two. So, um, I want to read this from Matthew Fox. This is, I've always loved this piece of writing. It's very short. but He says, I believe that religious experience begins with awe and wonder. Or, or A-W-E-R. I think you say R. R and wonder. This is the first step in the spiritual journey. Or, ah, is the beginning of wisdom. There can be no compromise on this truth. The first step towards spiritual revolution is to recover awe and wonder in our time. You know, step outside the door. Look in, look in the eyes of a person, of a child, you know. But, for, you know, in this context, step outside the door. You know, driving up here, you know. This land here, this beautiful, the hills, the mountains, the trees, the, the wildflowers, the grasses, you know. Just, it's hard not to be touched. And if we're not touched, what's going on? Take a look. Maybe you drove here and didn't notice a thing. You were on your cell phone, eating your burrito, or whatever you were doing. Maybe you got out the car and, ah, oh, trees, you yeah, know, it's cool. Yeah, bay trees, eh? Yeah. So, you know, so for me, you know, meditation practice, mindfulness practice is about opening our capacity to be present, to be awake, to be aware. It's the fundamental ground of any practice is to be present, to be aware, to be, to wake up from the dream of our thoughts and fantasies, the past, the future, and just be here, be present to what is. As we're present to what's here, we become more receptive more touched, more open, more sensitive. And so when we, so, so the, the basis of my work outdoors is, is marrying this quality of awareness with the natural world. So they're in this beautiful reciprocal relationship. As we cultivate presence and awareness, attention, receptivity, then we can receive what's out there. We can be touched by the you know the flight of a of a swallow, you know, or the sound of frogs croaking at night, croaking frogs croaking at night, you know, or the shooting star, or just the simple blades of grass. You know, we can be touched. We we, we can be moved. And in the same way that the nature brings forth that presence, it invites it. It it calls forth the owl hooting at night, 
the seagulls, the wind, the, the, the pebbles on the beach, the sand, the, the, the night, the scent of jasmine that's, that's coming out now, and blossoms, apple blossoms. And it calls forth, it invites us to pay attention. So wake up, they say you're living on this beautiful planet. Pay attention, it's precious. Spring is precious. This may be your last spring. Someone once said to me, think about your life in terms of the seasons. How many springs will you have left? Maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe we have one more. Maybe five, maybe ten, maybe twenty. You know, maybe thirty, maybe forty, maybe fifty, max, maybe. If we're lucky. And we put it in that context, oh, there's not that many. You know, not that many. You know, we think about our life, oh, you know, I'm going to live for a long time, and, you know, if I'm lucky. And, and so there's this sort of amorphous time in the future. But no, how many springs do you have? How many summers will there be in your life? How many seasons of autumn? So it brings a kind of poignancy. You know, nature brings a poignancy to our lives. It's, you know, it's one of its loudest teachings, is a teaching of transience, of change, imminence. You know, taking a walk, we do these meandering meditations. So we do some sitting meditation, and then we did we did some formal sort of a passing walking up and down. But I encourage people to do meandering meditation, where we just let your body be called to wherever it's called. The rocks, or sitting with the ocean, or lying down looking up at the sky, or sitting with whatever you found, whatever pulled you. So when I was walking, I was just so drawn to death that everywhere I went, there was crab shells and anemone shells and bones of seagulls and fish and uh, hermit crab shells and just this endless array of life once living starfish shell beautiful bleached white in the sun and it's so easy for us to think oh that's that out there right those things die out there you know the shells and the fish and But that's not going to happen to me. You know, nature's such a great reminder. Everything is passing, shifting, changing, turning, moving. Nothing's around that long. Even our loved ones aren't around that long. There's this great line in the Mahabharata, that wonderful Hindu text that says something, goes something like, what's the most wondrous, and um, what's the most curious thing about human beings? is taking a lot of time dwelling on how things pass away, how all living things pass away, and thinking it's not going to happen to them. You know, We read the obituaries in the back of the Times or whatever you read. Oh, so-and-so has passed, and this actor, and this politician, and this... And it seems so distant. So with this awe, with this attention comes, comes wonder, as Matthew Fox was saying, comes mystery, comes this, you know, spring is so mysterious, you know, it's, it's a little less prominent here because the, the seasons aren't so pronounced, but you know, just being on the East Coast where the trees, you know, they're still, the, the sap is still in the ground 
And it's amazing to think that these, these very still forests, leafless forests, bloom, you know, where these buds just come bursting out in April and May, Massachusetts and Maine. And... But we see it here too, that the buds, the blossoms, the grasses, the flowers, the wildflowers, you know, the lupins, I just took a walk the other day and the lupins and the poppies were just bursting and the, the symmetry of the coloring was so exquisite. And you know, Nature just has this wonderful ability to match colors, you know, we, we do this whole fashion thing, you know, and the colors, the season, you know, and <laughs> you take, we take one step out the door and there's this exquisiteness of perfection, of color. And I, I teach down in the, in the mountains in New Mexico and there's, there's, the, there's I always remember, there's the, um, there's the red paintbrush with the lupine and this yellow, um, particularly yellow flower, and there's this Beautiful symmetry of red, yellow, and blue in the, in the grasses. And it brings out this wonder. You know, you plant a seed in spring. You know, maybe some of you are gardeners. You're planting your seeds. And then suddenly something grows out of it. You plant this teeny little seed and you have the, the, the shoots of you know, whatever flowers or carrots or lettuce dust, or whatever it is you're growing. It's a mystery. Life is a mystery. And when we forget that, we've gone numb. We've gone dead a little bit if we don't see the mystery in growing things, in, in life, in change. So what's happened to make us go numb? I'm not saying we, you know, we're doing this the whole time going, wow, look at the flower, wow. This was once dinosaur bones in 200 million years ago. Oil. There was a survey once that said that, that when you're asking people about their religious experience, the divine experience, the experience of the sacred, and um, people said that 80, the, 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 the summary was 80% of the people had their sense of being touched by the divine outside in nature. That's where most people feel, a lot of people feel that connection to the sacred, because it is sacred. And we sense something bigger, vaster, more mysterious, more complex. <clears throat> You know, we look at the night stars and we go, wow, puts my problems into perspective. Doesn't, doesn't deny one's issues and one's life. Doesn't say it doesn't exist, it's not important. There's a value to, to the smallest buttercup. But it also gives a perspective. That's why we step outside and go, I need to take some fresh air. I need to go for a walk. You're in the middle of a row with your partner or your boss and you go outside and you walk on the block a few times and there's space, there's elements, there's breath, there's light, there's wind, there's, oh, right. It's not so intense as or big as I thought it was. Mary Oliver writes about, in a, my favorite poems called When It's All Over, no, it's called When Death Comes. She writes, when it's over, when it's all over, I want to say of my life, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. All my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. I was the bridegroom welcoming, inviting everything in to my arms. What a beautiful metaphor for life, to, to marry life like that to each moment, or as many moments as we can muster. I remember I was teaching meditation in uh, San Quentin, there's a friend of mine who had this beautiful project 
growing a vegetable flower garden in one of the exercise yards in San Quentin, medium security part of the prison. And it was a beautiful project, and they, the, the, she and the, the inmates created this really exquisite garden. And what was some many beautiful things happened, particularly both the guards and the, the prisoner, the inmates got involved, and um, these really big, strong guys. You know, we, they, we, we, I went to the open day when for, there was some sort of celebration, and these big guys, you know, were so proud of their tomato plants and their cucumbers and, and the, you know, the dahlias. And it, just, it was just an incredible, you know, to have that sweetness in this very hostile, sterile, barbaric environment. Um, and one of the days I went there, I'd, I'd lead a meditation group before they did that gardening. Uh, we were standing outside, it was a lockdown, and um, so the guards and we were outside, and the, the inmates were inside, locked down for however many hours they'd been locked down. And it was kind of a wild, autumnal, stormy evening, and we were just standing there looking around. Um, actually, there was a bunch of folks from the course with us, and this full moon rose out of the clouds. You know, and here we were in San Quentin, barbed wire all around, prisoners, guards, guns, the whole thing, the whole insanity of it. And then these beautiful, puffy, sort of violet clouds, and then the, this, this, the, the full moon rising. And it just, everyone stopped talking and just got quiet. And it was, and it's like nature's a great equalizer, you know, and even in that environment, nature penetrates. So I read this poem when I was on the retreat. I like to read a lot of poetry when I teach just because it says in so few words what it would take me to say in so many. And because we were doing these sunrise meditations, it seemed apropos that we would I read this poem about the sun from Mary Oliver. She writes, Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every evening, relaxed and easy, floats towards the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone, and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world, like a red flower streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say on a morning in early summer at its perfect imperial distance? And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a world billowing enough for such pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Or have you too gone crazy for power or for things? So as a, uh, something I read the other week from um, Joanna Macy, who's a wonderful teacher and friend and lover of the planet. And she wrote, it's actually in some interview where she said, um, uh, the, the path of Buddhism is very erotic. Um, 
because it's about paying attention. And if you pay attention, if you pay attention long enough, you can't help fall in love with that which you're paying attention to. So that for me is very true in nature. That one of the things that, that's most beautiful is it brings for it opens the heart. It opens the heart to be touched. And as we get more present, more attentive, what happens? We start to fall in love. Our heart gets really touched by things. You know. So I know even when we do these retreats up in the hill up in the hills here. Um, being surrounded by the woods and the hills, and you know, there's a lot of animals here. You know, because these monasteries become safe havens for animals. You know, because in, in the Buddhist precepts of non-harming, so all life is protected. So you often find in monasteries, Buddhist monasteries all over the world, that there's there's a, there's a haven for animals. So there's lots more deer come down from the hills. They actually come down partly to get away from the mountain lion, who's <laughs> more up the hill. <laughs> And turkeys and you know all kinds of critters and beautiful beings and and people sort of fall in love with the deer, particularly the fawns. You know, there's a lot of fawns right now, white spots and stumbly legs and um, so easy to fall in love when the heart's open in that way, when we're attentive, when we're awake, when we're present. I remember watching, when I was up in Alaska, I, I lead these kayaking retreats sometimes in Alaska, which is very, very alive ecosystem, very pristine in some ways. And I'd look down often at the, under, at the surface of the water, and, you know, it's like all these stones, and it looks beautiful. And then if you look, stay there long enough, you realize the, it's all moving. It's all crabs and hermit crabs just doing their thing. And, but it's, but you see, <laughs> it's a kind of a, it's like the gladiator down there, you know, the big hermit crabs, the little hermit crabs, and it's doggy dog or crabby crab. <laughs> and um, you know, the heart feels that 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 tenderness for the for the vulnerability of life. You know, seeing these baby turkeys that come out certain times of year. You know, this, I think that this this winter there was uh, maybe about seventeen of them. There was three three mothers and about seventeen. They would all you know clucked together. You know, and maybe three or four survive. You know, maybe if they're lucky. You know, that's 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 the the natural law. And so, you know, it's, it's this natural tenderness, love, care, compassion arises. You know, the the vulnerability of seeing these birds in their nests, you know, quivering and shaking, and knowing that it's only so many will live. You know, it's a hard it's a hard physical world to grow up in as any species. So, um, many, many things to say. Too little time. Maybe I'll just read some poems. (laughs) So, um, you know, talked about the peace that comes when we go outside. Maybe this week, try doing some meditation outdoors. On your deck, in your yard, go out into the hills, into the park at the beach, wherever you are. See what happens when you go outdoors, sit or walk, whatever, whatever kind of meditation you like to do. 
let the awareness be very open and receptive. Don't try to have this very cloistered, okay, I'm going to follow my breath, I'm not going to listen to the birds, I'm not going to listen to the birds. Let the awareness be very open and receptive. Let Let the senses be your guide to presence. So the bird song, the sound of the wind in their leaves, the crickets at night, beautiful thing to meditate to. The smells, the touch of this, the wind on your skin, the sunlight, the coolness. Feel the solidity of the earth. You meditate, sit on the floor, walk barefoot through the grass. Lie down on the earth, feel the hardness, the, the connection. Feel yourself as part of the earth's moving surface. We are part of the earth's moving surface. We're not separate from the earth looking at the earth going, oh, this is a nice planet. Hmm. Glad I chose this one. No, we are part of the earth that's able to behold itself, that's able to see itself, that's able to know itself, taste itself, feel itself. How, how long have you lived separate from the earth? You know, we maybe take one step and we maybe, you know, maybe we can jump a second or two. You know, but we're rooted to this planet, this life-bestowing planet. So I have to tell a story just because I had such a kick when it happened. So I was on retreat, and when I'm teaching retreats, I like to work with people one-on-one. So I was in the middle of interviewing people, checking in with them, seeing how they're doing with their meditation. And, and it's a beautiful beach and um, this little clearing in the desert. And um, so I'm sitting, listening to somebody talk about the interview, about their meditation, and all of a sudden this beautiful black four-foot uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, a whip, a whip snap snake comes out behind the guy I'm interviewing for his meditation, <laughs> and just slithers behind him and out into the clearing and back into the trees. Such a beautiful moment. Fast, actually, it's a fast slither. Never quite know what's going to happen at any moment. Not poisonous. I didn't know that at the time, but. <coughs> I love snakes, so I was delighted to see a snake. So, um, uh, maybe, maybe I'll read a couple. Well, here's, here's something I like to read. So this is, this is from Eckhart Tolle, and it's a beautiful piece about the, res, the, reciprocal, the reciprocal nature of bringing our presence to nature. He says, whenever you bring your attention to anything natural, anything that has come into existence without human intervention, you step out of the prison of conceptualized thought and to some extent participate in the state of connectedness with being in which everything natural still exists. To bring your attention to a stone or a tree or an animal does not mean to think about it, but simply to perceive it and hold it in your awareness. Something of its essence then transmits itself to you. You can sense how still it is, and in doing so, the same stillness arises within you. You sense how deeply it rests in being, completely at one with what is and where it is. In realizing this, you too come to a place of deep rest within yourself. So this is what happens when we allow ourselves to be open, to be touched. Then when we're sitting with a tree or the ocean, or a rock, or a stream. We can be, you know, we're not separate from any of it. And when we get quiet enough, we can feel that, we can be touched, and it permeates. 
it, it, it actually allows us to drop back into our own being, our own nature, our own true nature. This is from the poet Wendell Berry, poet slash farmer slash activist. He writes famously, it's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. Who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. And I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So please, sometime this week, go out and experience the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief like that Mark Twain quote, my life has been full of great mishaps and tragedy, none of which ever happened. <laughs> but we spend a lot of nights in the middle of the night thinking about that. Oh my God, what happens if my kids do that and my partner and my bank balance and my stocks, oh, that already happened. Okay, what about something else to worry about? <laughs> so anyhow, that's um, all I have time for. Maybe I'll say more another time. So, um, <clears throat> as I said, I did write a book about this called Awake in the Wild, uh, if you're interested. And I have a website called awakeinthewild.com. And um, I lead many of these retreats every year. It's one of my favorite things to do. I've got a backpacking retreat in the Sierras in July and um, retreat in Costa Rica in the fall and in winter and over New Year's. Um, and a retreat up in, in the Northwest in September. And then many local stuff, Point Reyes and here. And so hope to see you in the wild someday. <laughs> so next week, Jack will be back. He's finished teaching the, the month retreat. So he'll be back and dinner will be served. So have a beautiful week. May you awaken in the wild. Thank you. Please remember to take your chairs back and turn right out of Spirit Rock and pay attention to the moon and the stars. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.